Well, good morning, everybody. Hope everybody enjoyed the time change as much as I did. Uh, why do they got to do that? No. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew. We're going to be, uh, I think, at the end of chapter 20. So the last paragraph there in verse 29. But first, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do just thank you so much for this time. Uh, we thank you for your word that you've spoken to us, that you're not a God who is silent, but that you have made yourself clear um, through creation and through your word to us. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this word to our hearts today, um, that you would help us to know you as the great God of mercy. God, help us to believe that afresh in our hearts in a real way. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, what do you want? What do you want? Not what do you want for your future, or what do you want for your marriage, or what do you want for your finances, or even out of life. The question is to be as broad as possible. What do you want? What would you say if someone you respected and trusted walked up to you today and asked you that question? Or even better, what would you say if you were truly honest about the answer and felt like the person was worthy enough or safe enough to hear you answer it truthfully? What if you thought they might actually be able to give it to you? Maybe because of the way they said it. What do you want me to do for you? How would you respond when your answer could be anything in the world? Your answer would reveal a lot about you, and it would reveal a lot about the person who answered you. And we get to see this question asked today in our passage and what this reveals about the people in it. But before we get there, let's, let's think about the potential answers. As human beings, we have wants and we have needs. You can really want a need, but you don't always really need a want. We live in a culture that has the luxury of having a lot of our basic needs, a lot of our extra wants taken care of and provided for. And needs and wants have a lot to tell us about what it means to be human. And psychologists are some who are in the business of helping us get at what it means to be human. One psychologist in the 20th century by the name of Abraham Maslow gave us a model that he called a hierarchy of needs. And it's a hierarchy because you may be able to survive as a human at the very bottom level. But you won't be able to thrive until you move up the levels all the way to the top. And he started with what he defined as basic needs, like food, water. And then he moved to safety and security, sense of belonging was next, love, feelings of accomplishment, uh, feelings of having your reputation validated by others. And the top level he defined as self-actualization, self-fulfillment, a kind of being all you can be, reaching your full potential. 
And so whether or not we agree with his hierarchy, there's no doubt that we can see how aspects of it make sense. Though some of his hierarchy of needs and wants can be helpful, his, his big worldview, his big picture of human beings is a much different view than what God has for us in the Scriptures today. Maslow viewed human beings as essentially good, that they were essentially good by nature, or that, that they were at least neutral by nature. It was a humanistic understanding of psychology. He said, quote, the highest values within human nature are to be discovered there. This is in sharp contradiction to the older and more customary beliefs that the highest values can come only from a supernatural God or from some other source outside of human nature itself, end quote. And so the scriptures today paint a picture for us that reveal that our deepest needs and wants as human beings, we cannot provide for ourselves. That's beyond our reach. It's beyond our capabilities. Even if we have food, shelter, even if all our five senses are working on all cylinders, even if we have love and belonging, have accomplished much, feel esteemed by other people, and might even feel good about ourselves, what we really need is mercy. That's what we really need. Because in and of ourselves, we don't have the inner resources to reach what a human being was originally created to be. We can't do it left to ourselves. But the good news is that we have a God who came to give us what we cannot give ourselves. We need mercy, and at some point in our lives we know we do, and at varying levels Sometimes we will cry out for it in a specific situation. And the good news is that God has come in Jesus to give it. So in our story today, there are essentially three types of human beings. There's two blind men who are crying out for mercy. There is a large crowd that's trying to silence them. And there's Jesus stopping to meet them. And all three of these reveal so much about who we are, so much about what we need, and about who God is and what God gives to us. It shows us the nature of man. It shows us the nature of God. And so that's what we're going to see in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So the scene is set. Jesus is leaving Jericho with his disciples, and there is a lot of people following him. And there's a difference between being a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. He had a lot of followers that weren't disciples. There was a difference between a true follower. But there's no doubt that Jesus could gather a crowd because of the things he said and because of the things that he did. And so some in the crowd were probably more like paparazzi, that they were in it for the show, in it for the excitement. Some were genuinely interested, curious, weren't just there for the show. And then some who legitimately loved Jesus, didn't totally understand what was going on, but wanted to follow him. But the point here is that Jesus has quite the following as he heads out of Jericho on the way to Jerusalem, where his following is going to change. 
in a big way. There's going to be a drastic change as these chapters move to the end of Matthew. Verse 30, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David! Exclamation point. So behold, so our attention is intentionally drawn away from the big crowd, all the noise, and to just these two guys. And so Matthew is about to set a contrast between the attitude of the crowd and the attitude of these men. And the first thing he wants us to know is that they're blind. They're blind. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be blind. Have you ever given that thought? If you're blind, what do you see? Know that, and I don't mean that as a joke. Like, what do, you, what do you see if you're blind? When I close my eyes, I usually see light, little bits of um, buzzy light stuff behind my eyelids. When it's dark, I may not see anything. But what's it like to interact with the world without being able to see it? To never be able to see the smile of a baby, never be able to see a human face, not be able to see your own face. So I don't know what that's like, but a guy by the name of John Hole does. He was a professor of religious studies in England and he wrote a book that compiled diary-like accounts that were about his experience of going blind. He had eye trouble for a long time and eventually... He became blind in his 40s. Now, we don't know whether these men in this story were blind from birth or whether they were blind later in life. But normally in the first century, blindness occurred later because of infection. So, they may have been like this John Hole. And I haven't read his book, but I found one book reviewer's depiction of how Hole described going blind intriguing. This is what he says. Hole describes how it is to cross the street. How terrifyingly and totally one can get lost when one is blind. How it is to find oneself ignored or infantilized. How the memories and images of people's faces, one's own face too, no longer updated by actually seeing, become first fossilized, then faint, and then disappear altogether. How relationships with one's family change. How the very concepts of place, space, here, there, presence, appearance become by degrees with the advance into blindness completely emptied of meaning. Hole himself describes how the loss of sight was like a loss of self. This is what he says. When I was about 17, I lost the sight of my left eye. I can remember gazing at my left shoulder and thinking, well, that's the last time I'll see you without looking in a mirror. To lose the shoulder is one thing, but to lose one's own face poses a new problem. I find that I'm trying to recall old photographs of myself just to remember what I look like. I discover with a shock that I cannot remember. Must I become a blank on the wall of my own gallery? To what extent is loss of the image of the face connected with loss of the image of the self? Is this one of the reasons why I often feel I am a mere spirit, a ghost, a memory? 
Other people have become disembodied voices, speaking out of nowhere, going into nowhere. And am I not like this too, now that I've lost my body? And so I think these descriptions help us to have a little taste of what it would have been like to be blind, totally blind. It would change the way we not only experience the world on the outside, but how we experience the world on the inside. Matthew also tells us that these blind men are sitting by the roadside. And it's probably the case that not only are they blind, but that they are beggars. Without sight, without much means at all. And to make matters worse, they're probably on a dangerous road. We know that the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was known to have its share of bad guys in it. Robbers. Now, at this time, it probably wasn't quite as dangerous because it was Passover, so there were a lot of people around. And obviously, in this story, there's a bunch of people around. But either way, we have men at, again, to use Maslow's hierarchy, at the very bottom of the scale, in need of sight, in need of food, money, and men who are probably used to being around danger, not safe. Not exactly conditions for self-actualization. Not exactly the place to reach their full human potential. But they've heard some good news. The famous teacher, the healer, Jesus, is coming their way. They hear the buzz in the crowd that Jesus is near, so they start shouting. And that's what they're doing. That's what crying out means. It may have even been a piercing scream. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They beg for mercy. Verse 31. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And so now we get a sense of the cast of characters that make up this crowd that's around them. The crowd tries to get the blind beggars to shut up. So they rebuke these helpless men and tell them, Be quiet. In the crowd's mind, their screams are grating. The shouting is annoying. Be quiet. Go away. This yelling is getting awkward. According to the crowd, the blind men don't need to be wasting Jesus' time airing out their vulnerabilities and their miseries for everybody to hear. The rebuke is firm. It's possibly with a threatening tone. I was thinking it's very easy to follow the crowd and to do what they tell you. As human beings, it's hard to stand apart from the crowd, especially for certain personalities. For some personalities, well, they just love standing apart from the crowd. But for others, following the crowd is is normal. And yet these two blind men can care less. They know what it's like to be weak and helpless. They know what it's like to be treated like a child, infantilized, as Hole put it, ignored, So what do they do? They shout out all the more. They get louder. They want the attention of Jesus. And imagine if they would have obeyed the crowd. The story would have stopped right there. If they found the nature and the character of the crowd to silence them more compelling than the nature and character of Jesus, the man of mercy. And so this tells us something about these men. They know their deep need. They know it. They know their weakness. They know their vulnerability. And they're going to let everything hang out for a chance to meet Jesus. That's what they're going to do. 
I can't help but wonder which one in the story you and I are. Are you afraid or are you unafraid to speak of your weaknesses? Or do you see yourself as strong and preferring to silence any bit of weakness in you or vulnerability in other people? How do you view the weak? How do you view the helpless? How do you view the disabled? How do you view the spiritually needy? And all of that reveals what you believe about yourself. And all of it reveals what you believe about God. If we don't believe God is merciful, we will be prone to not be honest about who we really are. And the issues we have, we will be silent. But if we believe that God loves to show mercy, that He loves it, that we can be honest before Him about who we really are and what we need, and that's what they believed. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who they were. They weren't hiding. And so they continue to ask Him for mercy over and over. They beg the King for mercy. Verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? So this is where we see the character of Jesus. He stops. While the other members of the crowd seek to silence the blind men, Jesus stops for them. He notices them. He sees them. They would have not been used or they would have been used to not being seen. Just kind of cast off to the side. And Jesus sees them. And he asks them a question. And it kind of seems a little bit cruel. (laughs) Because these are blind beggars. But he's not being cruel. Jesus wants them to acknowledge and to vocalize their specific need. He wants them to say it. He wants them to name it. Because their answers uncover the state of their heart. What do you want me to do for you? In the paragraph before, he asked the same question, basically the same, to some of the disciples' mom. And like any good mom, she wanted her kids to do well. She wanted her kids to get some of their Abraham Maslow needs met. She wanted her boys to have notoriety, to have esteem, to be sitting next to Jesus in the kingdom, right? So she was shooting for the stars. She was going big. She wanted them to have authority, to be way up on the hierarchy. But she didn't understand the character of Jesus and the nature of his mission. That Jesus was the kind of king who exercised his authority by becoming a slave, by serving. And so here Jesus is asking a similar question, but he's doing so to those that understand the character of Jesus and the state of their own hearts in a much deeper way than this lady did. Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And so they knew their great need. And instead of answering with a lofty want, they answer with the greatest need that they have to see. And I love all the rawness that we see here of these men. The emotion that they're like the psalmist that Brad read this morning. David, they let their emotions hang out in their pleas for mercy. David, don't be silent, God. I'm pleading with you for mercy. You have times when he 
talks about his enemies, when he talks about what's going on in his heart, he is not ashamed to share everything that's going on in his heart to God, to cry out for it. And these men don't have to hide who they really are and what they really feel and what they really want. They weren't just begging for food or for money anymore. They were begging to see. It may have been that they actually went to this place for healing because it was known to produce a substance that assisted with eye problems. And instead of just a substance, they get the son, the son of David, the Messiah, had come close to them. And they knew who he was and they said it. and They wanted mercy from him. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. So Jesus gives them what they want. They are immediately healed. And the heart of Jesus for the weak is completely bared here. Jesus, in pity, touched them. Pity doesn't quite show us the weight of what is happening here. It seems very trite. At least it does to me. Whenever I hear the word pity, it just sounds like that. Oh, pity. But the word used here is a guttural word that shows deep affection. Splank nits omai. Splank nits omai is the word. The compassion of Jesus is pictured as coming from deep within, as deep as the bowels, the entrails. That is the word that is used here. And so I wonder if the shout or the scream, the desperation that these blind men have, Everything from within them shouting out for mercy. I wonder if in a similar way that's describing what's happening inside of the heart of Jesus. But instead of coming from a place of need, a cry of need from everything within and a place of lack, that it's coming from a place of fullness. The same kind of emotion, but the, the place of fullness to meet, to provide for the need. That's the kind of compassion that Jesus has toward people. Matthew has used this expression before. He uses it more than the other gospel writers. He wants us to see that Jesus is a compassionate Savior. Jesus is, if He's anything, He's a compassionate, He's a merciful King. So when you think of Jesus, what's at the top of your list? When you think of God, what's at the top of your list? Here, the merciful King meets people in their misery. And so, we don't serve a ruler who's brash. We don't serve a leader who's cantankerous, who's grumpy, who's prone to lash out, who's quick to get angry and upset, who's only out for himself. We don't serve someone who uses their authority to mistreat people, to mock the disabled. Jesus uses His authority to serve us at our worst. He's slow to anger. He's full of mercy. He stops to show compassion to those who need it. And so that's his posture. That's his character. The character of God. And so paragraphs like this in the Bible remind us that Jesus is a deeply human Savior. Not simply a spiritual one. He is the God-man who's not unaffected by human misery. And whether it's the misery of living in the fallen world like these men had, the misery of the body's decay, or whether it's the self-inflicted misery of our own sinful blindness, Jesus came to help. He came to save. He came to heal. He came to help the helpless. He's the physician. 
He's the one who came for sinners. And interestingly, it's the blind men here that really see Jesus for who He really is. They can't see, yet they really see. Matthew, throughout his Gospel, associates blindness with spiritual hypocrisy. Seeing Pharisees can't see Him for who He is because they're actually the ones that are blind. The ones that can truly see are the ones that are blind. They see Jesus for who He really is, merciful, and they see themselves as they really are, blind. And another thing about being blind is that these men could not have been priests. Leviticus 21 lists various defects that kept Levites from offering sacrifices. That it wasn't only a defective sheep that couldn't have any kind of physical defect in order to be offered, but that it was priests who couldn't have them either. The defects limited worship. So there was a limit to the access they had to God as Jewish men. But Jesus, in His mercy, is turning this on its head. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. And again, sympathy doesn't do a whole lot for me. It sounds too sentimental. But that's not the kind of high priest Jesus is. He doesn't stand off unaffected from us. It's saying that He enters the mess. He gets down in the gunk. He's like a parent cleaning up puke, changing a diaper, holding a child after they're hurt. He stops to do so. He doesn't ignore it and move on. He's a sympathetic high priest who knows human weakness. And he turns this on its head because he's heading into Jerusalem as the unblemished sacrifice and the unblemished priest to become blemished. He took on the physical defects and deformities of being whipped, of being broken, of being beaten, to die on a tree that is a cursed object. His body was broken in misery to be mercy for us. He became the outcast. He became the rejected. He became the silenced, the blemished, in order to make us spiritually and physically unblemished, to make us whole. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the passage is here to remind us of who God is for us in Jesus that He is a merciful King. And it's here to call us to the kind of faith that these blind men have. Honest, raw, bold, not listening to haters, but pursuing Jesus no matter what. Not taking no for an answer and pursuing Him specifically as the merciful King. This past week was October 31st. Halloween. One day a year where parents allow their kids to get a ton of candy from strangers for free. Right? It's also a day that celebrates another kind of freedom. Halloween 2017 marked the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. Or at least the day in which Luther nailed the 95 theses to a door in Germany. Which changed the course of church history, breaking off from the Roman Catholic Church, but also really actually changed the course of world history and the shape of the Western world. And one of Luther's contemporaries was a guy named John Calvin. And Calvin is most famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, for predestination. But he talked a bunch about other stuff. He wrote a wonderful section in his Institutes of Christian Religion that illustrates, I think, what this passage shows us about the nature of faith 
and the free mercy of God. And it's Calvin, so this is like 15th century, so the language is going to be a little bit weird, but I'll do my best to help us really hear this. I think it's really, really good. Helps us see what this passage is saying. Free promise, excuse me, wow, free. Free promise we make the foundation of faith because in it faith properly consists. For though it holds that God is always true, faith holds that God is always true, whether in ordering or forbidding, promising or threatening, though it obediently receives His commands, observes His prohibitions, and give heed to His threatening, yet it properly begins with promise, continues with it, and ends with it. It, and again he's speaking about faith here, faith seeks life in God. Life which is not found in commands or the denunciations of punishment, but in the promise of mercy. And this promise must be gratuitous. For a conditional promise, which throws us back upon our works, promises life only insofar as we find it existing in ourselves. Therefore, if we would not have faith to waver and tremble, we must support it with the promise of salvation, which is offered by the Lord spontaneously and freely from a regard to our misery rather than our worth. Therefore, when we say that faith must rest on a free promise, we point to the promise of mercy as its special object. Believers indeed ought to recognize God as the judge and the avenger of wickedness, and yet mercy is the object to which they properly look, since He is exhibited to their contemplation as good and ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy, slow to anger, good to all, and shedding His tender mercies over all His works. End quote. These blind men were seeking their very life, their deepest need, their greatest want in the promise and mercy of God in Jesus. Their faith isn't even mentioned in the passage, but this whole passage is soaked with what faith is. These blind men are showing us what true faith in God and what God Himself looks like. They remind us that faith isn't an inner power inside that we use to unleash our potential or that faith in and of itself saves us because blind men can't do anything to make themselves see. It's impossible. They got to rest on somebody else for help. But notice how Jesus is the one that gives them the sight. It's Jesus is the one who touches them, who turns the lights of their eyes back on. That's kind of the image there. So faith calls out for, faith calls out and receives the free mercy of God in King Jesus. Jesus freely, to use that big word gratuitously, which sounds illicit and it's supposed to, Promiscuous mercy. Faith looks at that and grabs hold of that in Jesus Christ. Faith rests in God's mercy from the compassionate King who came to make us whole. And so Christianity is not just about belief in a general God, isn't just the anti of atheism but it's explicitly receiving God for who He really is, that He is the merciful one. He is the gracious one. He's the one who pities and is concerned for us. And I think there's one other thing here for us to see. God doesn't want us to just stay on the roadside. 
I think some of us think, I know that I a lot of the times think that Christianity is just kind of staying as blind beggars on the side of the road. Woe is me, bad sinner. Wallowing in our sin and shame and need. But I think we need to get these kind of guts, this kind of faith, this bold faith for the mercy that is found in Jesus. To seek God no matter what. When others are trying to silence us, when our circumstances are trying to silence us, when the inner critic inside of our heads is trying to silence us, we tend to stay silent. But that's not what it is to be a Christian. That's not where Jesus wants us to stay. We forget who we are if we stay there. As a believer, as somebody who trusts Jesus Christ, the merciful one, we are not still blind. We see. We are set free. We can become who we actually were created to be. We are freed like Rahab, a resident of Jericho. Remember Jericho? That's where he's coming out of Jesus at this time. We're freed like Rahab. We're given an entirely new identity. To live an entirely new life of faith in the mercy of God. If you remember, two blind men in the story, there were two spies that went into Jericho. They went to a prostitute's house. Interesting. (laughs) And they go there and she helps them. She hides them. The king of Jericho wants them. She hides them. And something happens in Joshua 6. People marching around the city. The people of God coming. Everything falls down. They kill everybody in the city. And then in Joshua 6.22, But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so... We are like Rahab, sinful. But when by faith we go to Jesus for mercy, we are made new. We get a new identity. No longer prostitute. No longer sinner, but saint, child. And so we're called to have the faith that boldly believes that. Jesus desires us to live life as His people, experiencing boldness and confidence before God, our Father of mercy, telling Him what we want and what we need. Hebrews 4, 14-16 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's God's word for us. God wants us to know who we are in Him and who He is for us, which is why He wants us to gather on Sundays and take communion, to remember who He is, to remember who we are. So that's what we're going to do. Deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch's Why should 
have paid our ransom, so that means we're free. So we're going to celebrate the freedom right now. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. Let's sing, Joe. Would you please stand? We'll sing together. together. 